Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1 o'clock p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and for today, I'll be bringing you a special that will last for about the next hour, because today we're going to be discussing something uh, that is of, of huge importance to the people of Ontario, and the people of Ontario have been making that crystal clear. And of course, I'm speaking of the attempted changes to the sex ed curriculum in the school system by Premier Kathleen Wynne's Liberal government. Now, it's very safe to say that when the Liberal government started proposing changes to the sex ed curriculum, that they did not at all expect what was going to happen next. There have been tens of thousands of people protesting at Queen's Park, protesting Premier Kathleen Wynne's events, protesting outside the offices of provincial members of parliament. There's been a petition that's garnered already over 80,000 signatures. It's been covered by virtually every major news organization, not only in Ontario, but in fact in the country. It's an enormous story. And one of the reasons that this story is so interesting is because it's not just traditional Catholics and traditional Christian Protestants now who are actually protesting this new sex ed curriculum. In fact, it is a protest that crosses ethnic and cultural divides. There are Sikhs, there are Hindus, uh, there are Muslims, there are, is a huge contingent of Chinese immigrants as well who are opposing this. So this is basically a movement oriented towards saying loud and clear to the government that we should let kids be kids and that kids should not be learning these types of things in school. Now, what sort of things are they actually learning in school, and why are people getting so worked up? A lot of critics of these sex education protests who are completely boggled by the fact that tens of thousands of people are willing to show up in protest across the country. They're willing to pull their children out of school. Uh, they're basically willing to threaten to shut down the public education system over it. Well, inside this new sex ed curriculum is things that are being taught at a very early age. For example, in grade one at age six uh, they teach about genitalia and consent in the section uh, c 1.3 human development and sexual health uh, they identify body parts and uh, for example one teacher prompted me we talk about all body parts with respect what is important to know about your own body and use the correct names for parts of the body now, this alone doesn't seem particularly radical, but Kathleen Wynne and Minister Liz Sandals have also promised the teaching of, quote, enthusiastic sexual consent will be weaved throughout the sex ed curriculum beginning in grade one, and it appears that it will become progressively more explicit in each grade so that children can, quote, see what consent looks like, although the government has not yet provided details of what that might look like, and so on and so forth. Children are taught about homosexuality in the third grade. In grade four, uh, they're taught many, many things about dating that parents feel are very uh, age-inappropriate. Uh, for example, in grade six, at age 12, they're taught all about masturbation, and so on and so forth. If anyone's interested in seeing a breakdown of this, you can go to uh, Campaign Life Coalition's website at Campaign Life 
Coalition.com. They've actually uh, delivered there a breakdown of the sex ed curriculum, and it's been translated into Arabic, English, French, Chinese, Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish, so uh, that parents can really be aware of what their children are being taught. Now, because the story is such a big one, I wanted to take a close look at modern sex education, why it's been implemented, uh, why, for example, uh, across the West, sex education is increasingly teaching children how to have sex and not just about sex in general. And and one of the reasons that I want to take a closer look at this topic as well is that one of the things uh, that pro-lifers hear all the time when they're engaging people on the abortion issue is that the answer uh, to decreasing the abortion rate would in fact be uh, more sex education, of course, which is manifestly untrue, as the next guest will point out. We've seen an increase in abortion as the result of, of sex education. And one of the reasons for this, as George Jonas uh, pointed out recently in the National Post, is that when you teach people how to do things, more likely, uh, more people are more likely to partake in those actions and at a younger and younger age. So today I'm bringing two very special guests on to discuss uh, modern sex education with me. And, and the first guest will be familiar to many of you, and it's journalist and author Peter Hitchens. Um, I've actually had him on this uh, show twice before, once to discuss the overall uh, decline in morality and the overall decline in Christianity in Western culture, and once to discuss uh, his book, The War We Never Fought, in which he discusses uh, the mainstreaming of recreational drugs. Now, uh, Peter Hitchens has written a number of, of amazing books, including The Abolition of Britain, which is, is my favorite, The Rage Against God, which is also a phenomenal book, and A Short History of Crime, and a number of, of other books that really do apply across the Anglosphere and not just specifically in the United Kingdom. So uh, my first guest will be Peter Hitchens discussing uh, the concept of sex education and its impact on our culture and on the, uh, the Anglosphere, essentially. And the second guest is going to be somebody who's really been following these events very, very closely. It's, it's Dr. Scott Masson, and he's of the, of the Tyndale, he's an associate professor of English at Tyndale College. He, he got his PhD from the University of Durham, and uh, he specializes in English and European Romanticism, literary theory, hermeneutics, Christianity, and literature. He's a, a, a very fine Christian intellectual. Uh, he follows social issues very, very closely. And in fact, he wrote a very extensive piece for the National Post, breaking down the sex ed curriculum and explaining why it was dangerous and explaining why, in his words, the critics of this new sex ed curriculum were in fact right. So we'll be bringing him on for the second segment to begin this discussion. So uh, first I'd like to bring on uh, author and journalist Peter Hitchens to discuss modern sex education and the impact it has on our culture. Uh, we have a, a debate going on here in Canada which uh, you may or may not have heard of concerning sex education. One of our biggest provincial governments here is attempting to re-implement new sex education that uh, details a number of genders and things like that. And one of the problems uh, for the government is we have massive protests taking place now, a sort of coalition between you know, Sikh groups, Hindu groups, a variety of Christian groups, and they're claiming that the intention of the sex education of the government uh, is not just to teach, uh, but they're saying when you're teaching things like masturbation and you know, grades three or four and things like that, the intention is actually to corrupt their children. 
And, uh, you know, you detailed things like this in the abolition of Britain in numerous columns. I heard one radio interview where you said the purpose of sex education has been to, to debauch the youth of the nation. What would your, your take on this whole scenario be? Well, the problem with sex education is that the ostensible purpose for which it's advocated it turns out not to be true. I did a sort of study a few years ago of the development of sex education in my own country. And what I found was that it had been justified really since the, the middle part of the Second World War, when, of course, there was a lot of venereal disease, as we then called it, mm-hmm. on the basis that if people were better educated about it, then it would reduce the amount of sexually transmitted disease and the amount of unwanted pregnancy. And this has been advanced every time it's been both introduced and expanded. And yet, if you watch the figures for both sexually transmitted disease and for unwanted pregnancy, and increasingly now for abortion, uh, there's an interesting twist on that, which I'll come to in a moment. We find that despite the the greater and greater extent of sex education in our society, there's more and more of it, and indeed more and more frankness about sex, and more and more pornography, which was also supposed to end repression, the numbers of people becoming uh, pregnant when they didn't want to uh, continue to rise, and the number of people contracting sexually transmitted diseases continues to rise. So, as a, and this has now been going on for something like 60 years, uh, and to carry on doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, well, we all know what that's a definition of, and yet that's what the sex educators do. So it seems to me they've got to explain why it is that they persist in, in following a model which is demonstrably not working uh, along the, the, the lines which they claim. And, and here's the problem with it. Is there another explanation for it? it? It's said, and I've been trying to track this down for some time, and Hungarian history is quite difficult to pursue. It's said that George Lukács, who was commissar for education in the short-lived Belakon Soviet government in Hungary in 1918, mm-hmm. uh, openly said that the purpose of sex education when he introduced it then, and I think he was probably the first person ever to do so, was to debauch the, uh, the, the minds and morals of religiously brought up uh, young uh, young women, particularly. Uh, so I've been I've been trying for some time to, to check that to check that actual fact. I've not got it back to hard sources, but it seems to me to make a certain amount of sense. What else is the purpose of it? Because the kind of things which people are taught in sex education are are disinhibiting things. Mm-hmm. Once the thing I, when, when I was at school, and no one ever mentioned masturbation, it would, would have been considered extremely bad manners to mention it anywhere let alone for, the, for an adult teacher to talk to, to quite young children about it and about other sexual practices in class. The moment these things start being discussed, it disinhibits people. It takes, the, it, it takes restraints off them which previously were there. Now, you may believe, and a lot of people do believe and have believed for many years, that, that these inhibitions are bad for us. That's a point of view. I don't happen to share it. And if you, if you follow that point of view as a parent, then I suppose you're entitled to introduce your child to this sort of thing at an, as, uh, as early as, an age as you wish in a free country. But what bothers me is that it, it, in many cases, parents don't realize what's being done in classrooms until after it's happened mm-hmm. uh, and discover only later just how very disinhibiting this is. And the, one of the things about discussing, and this also happens in, in supposed drugs education, discussing these things in the way they're discussed is that they make things sound normal. So it's, it's, it's assumed that children will have uh, underage sex or unmarried sex or, mm-hmm. or promiscuous sex, and, and, and it's assumed that they will do so. And all the 
the precautions that they're supposed to take are based on this idea that this will happen uh, if you can't be good, be careful, and here are technical means to avoid pregnancy or and avoid sexually transmitted diseases, most of them centered around the, the condom, mm -hmm. uh, which is supposed to be the great savior in this. As I say, the results of this have not been satisfactory. I don't know whether you have the morning after pill, as we call it in we Canada, do. but this, this has made the one major difference in recent years, the numbers of actual pregnancies coming, you know, coming to the point of abortion or coming to term have begun to fall. But the the ease with which the morning after pill can now be obtained, which is effectively an abortion pill, uh, is now so great that I think that's probably the reason. It's very, very hard to obtain any figures on the numbers of these pills being distributed. I think if one could discover, one would find that that's the only reason why the numbers of abortions and, uh, and un un unwanted pregnancies uh, have begun to fall. Mm -hmm. uh, because you would note if you look particularly at, at diseases such as herpes, but also at some of the, the more uh, the, the more longer established sexually transmitted diseases, that the incidence of these is not going down. On the contrary, it's continuing to rise. Uh, now that, of course, can't be prevented by the morning after pill, and it can't actually be prevented by the, by the use of condoms either. It's, in, in general, it's, it seems to me to be an indication that if this thing is supposed to be uh, reducing the, the, the problems of, of unwanted pregnancy and sexually transmitted disease, it's failing on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And what I always wonder is why the people who advocate it aren't questioned more closely on this failure and on what their real motives are. And often when you, you look at what they write and what they say, it seems quite clear that they are people who have very strong views about, about having a less inhibited, more sexually liberated society. Well, mm -hmm. as I say, that is a, a, a position. And in a free society, people can hold it. But should schools, particularly schools financed by taxes, to which it's often more or less compulsory for children to go, should they be following this one practice or should they be staying neutral in this? And, and shouldn't it be left to, to parents themselves to decide what their children are told and when they're told it? Well, that's the interesting debate here is that the people who are putting forward uh, sex education and there's a flurry of, of back and forth columns going on in our newspapers uh, and, and they're saying, you know, we have very good intentions here. At the same time, we see things uh, that you've been referring to that there, it fails on its own terms. So did, for example, people say contraception solves abortion. Uh, we, we know for a fact that doesn't ha happen whatsoever. I think you referred to the birth control pill in your book, Abolition of Britain, the pill that solved yes. morality. And how must we approach this issue when uh, people are advocating essentially for a failing project? It's been failing for 50 years, um, yet they still claim to have very good intentions. And it's sometimes when you're speaking with them, it, it's hard to believe that they don't. Well, it, it, calmly, I think, and, 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 and take them at their own valuation. I, I don't think there's any point in, in, trying to, uh, in, in trying to whip up hostility against them or indeed in, in, in getting overexcited about it because it never works. Uh, the, particularly with the left. I think dogged and continued questions about the facts, about what, on what they base their claims that this form of education uh, will actually reduce the incidence of these things. And, and they need to be questioned again and again and again and asked to come, can you please explain to me exactly how and where you can show that this has ever happened? And then come up with your own. It's, it's not impossible to, to, to track the charts of these things and to go into the history of what sex education programs have been introduced and when in various school systems. Say, well, just explain to me, would you please? This was introduced at this point, and since then we've had this. Now, why is it that you think that doing, doing, doing what you propose now is going to make any difference to that? You did mention the point about the contraceptive pill. I mean, one of the things that is absolutely fascinating about the contraceptive pill is it's not just an accidental discovery. 
it was financed and encouraged by people who, who definitely saw it as, as the beginning of the sexual revolution and intended it to completely change the position of women in society, which it duly did. It's a political pill, it always was, and this is the astonishing thing about it. And it, it that is something which is worth, worth going into the history of, the whole, the, the whole business of Margaret Sanger and of the, the, the immensely powerful backing which went into the, to the development of this particular form of contraception and the change that it achieved. There is politics in sex, and there's no question about it. And much of those politics are about, as, they've, as they have been for a very long time now, really since the, the Enlightenment, have been about the conflict between the family and the state. The, 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 the state is, is increasingly hostile to the strong family, and it, the strong family is sustained by lifelong marriage and by a, a pretty uh, stern and, and puritan attitude towards sexual relations, uh, whereas uh, the, the strong state benefits in many ways, as does modern commerce and, uh, and the modern employer, from weak marriages and, uh, and relaxed sexual relations. And there's also the point which Aldous Huxley uh, makes, which is that we are increasingly going to embrace our own enslavement in the pursuit of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And a point which I, I believe, actually, the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm made, I, I think in, um, in, in, in the Asian Revolution, but I'd have to check this, that there is absolutely no congruence in human history between sexual freedom and political freedom. And slaves have always been allowed to copulate. What they haven't been allowed to do is marry. Right. Uh, and this is an extremely important point. There is no necessary connection between a society which is sexually free and sexually uninhibited and a society which is politically free, which has free speech and freedom of assembly. It doesn't necessarily follow at all. So we're dealing here with a very, very profound philosophical battle about the nature of society. It needs to be conducted in a very serious fashion. The difficulty is in finding anyone to give you a hearing. Well, I find this interesting because you were a, a Trotskyist when you were young, and you embraced a lot of different revolutionary views, and then you, you evolved out of those views, or as you I didn't it. evolve out of anything. I decided to stop believing it because it, it seemed to me to be uh, morally wrong and, uh, and, uh, and highly dangerous. And I, I, I just decided that I'd been doing something which was a grave mistake, which, which I continue to regret having done. But the great advantage which it gives me is that I know what left-wing people say and think in private when they're, they're, they're not trying to please people on television shows. I know just how dogged and, and devastating this project is, which they want, and I know that the, the fundamental engine of, of, of left-wing activity really since the 1960s has not been to seize the post office and the barracks and the railway station. It's been to seize the television station and the newspaper and the university and to ob- obtain victory through, through capturing the minds of people and, and also to, to alter society, not through nationalizing the railways or anything like that, but through nationalizing childhood. Uh, and this is very important to them. And one of the, the most salutary things I learned from living in the Soviet Union in its dying years was that, of course, the, the public ownership of the economy was very important, but it, the public interference in the sphere of private life was immensely more significant and is the thing which really distinguishes uh, the, the socialists, or rather the, the, the radical society, uh, from the conservative society. And that is what all this is fundamentally about, as far as I can see. And uh, I, uh, the, the, the huge difficulty of, no, of knowing just how bad the left is and not being able to explain uh, to conservatives what it is they're up against is one of the fundamental problems of modern Western societies. I, the, the formerly 
conservative political parties, such as the British Conservatives and the American Republicans, and to, to some extent your own conservative formation, mm-hmm. have now been taken over by social liberals. That's very true, and this, this leads me to uh, to a thought that I, I stumble across quite often. I'm I'm a, obviously a, a much younger man than yourself, but I meet many, you know, older, not difficult, <laughs> many older university professors and and things like that who who speak of 1968 in, in very yearning terms. It's still considered mm-hmm. sort of the, you know the age of Aquarius and uh, yes. you know this, this bygone age, and there seems to be this glorification of youth that extends in the the op-eds that are going on in our newspapers right now, even to return to the topic we began with, is that that kids should be making decisions for themselves, that if they want to opt out uh, they can speak to it. There seems to be this, well, and you see this even with with Belgium allowing children to opt for euthanasia and and same thing is is coming in in the Netherlands. It's... When they they say children should speak for themselves, what they actually mean is that their parents should be removed from, from the discussion. Uh, they don't actually want to speak for themselves. They want the, the, the children to do what they want them to do, and they know that the, the parental home is the biggest obstacle to this. I think Woodrow Wilson, who said that if, if he could get a man to university, he could make sure he disagreed with his father within a couple of years, and that was half the purpose of doing it. And, and, and one of the reasons, I think, behind the huge expansion of, of university and college education in the, in the Western world in the past 50 years has also been that the left see it as a very good way of disaffecting young people from their homes and, and disconnecting them from their homes and opening them to other more radical influences. The thing about 1968 is that it, 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 actually if you look at it and you look at what people said and how they behaved, this was the left showing its real face for right. a very brief and intense period uh, during which it, it learned that it would get much, much further uh, if it didn't do so. And so many of those 1968 people then went into the academy and into and broadcasting into the civil service and politics and actually very importantly into the law and learned tactics they learned that you didn't necessarily get what you wanted by saying openly what it what it was and that you worked for it little piece by piece by salami slicing and they succeeded in doing so it's 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 been very impressive the long march to the institutions began then and and has more or less conquered and if you if you were part of it when it began and you peeled off, it's very obvious. But precisely because it's got cleverer as it's got older, it's it's become much harder to resist. And most people, when I point out to them the extremely extremely left wing nature of of supposedly conservative parties in Western countries, they just they just don't believe me. And I say, look, I, I look at the British Conservative Party now; it, it is following policies which we would have thought pretty radical when I was a Trotskyist. And they just don't get it. They simply don't understand what's happened, that the, the evisceration of these bodies and the replacement of their actually fairly vague uh, principles with, with, um, with, with in enormously powerful commitments mm-hmm. to what is called call in, in, in modern Europe equality and diversity, uh, which is an entire ideology and, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of Gramsciism, social Marxism, really. Well, there seems to be, yeah, there's, there's a glorification of youth that in many fronts is beginning to resemble sort of, of a children's crusade yes, in, well, in everything. Um, but then there's also sort of, um, in regards to sex education, and I've taken a look at some of the curriculum that, that we're teaching here and, and also the kinds of things that uh, they teach you know, a, a, across the ocean on your side there, and it's all very similar. And part of this, uh, it seems to me, to have to do with the reclassifying of obscenity. So you can teach virtually any sexual practice regardless of whether or not it's considered distasteful, and but if you know if you show them a picture of what an abortion looks like, uh, you'll get crucified. Uh, so it seems to be that we've reclassified what is an obscenity and what is not to a 
large degree, and that sort oh, well, of yes, inhibiting that, discussion. That has been part of it. I mean, we had a number of court cases over this from, from Lady Chatterley's lover, the, uh, the D.H. Lawrence novel, the famous trial in, in which the obscenity laws of this country were, were recast so that practically anything which could be even faintly alleged to have literary merit had to be published. And the Little Red School book and the Oz School Kids issue, in which, again, the, the boundaries of what could be published were pushed back uh, with deliberate purpose. Uh, and But the, the idea that when, when this was challenged at the time, people said, uh, the advocates of it said that if we were a less inhibited society, we would have fewer sexual problems. There wouldn't be the, the horrible um, rapes and things like this, which we would seem to be a feature of the time. It hasn't turned out to be true, has right. it? And, and in fact, the, the fact that pornography is more available hasn't meant people are more relaxed about it and, and use it less. On the contrary, I think the majority of visits to the internet are made in search of pornography. Right. It's because people have forgotten the, the inherent truth that if you commodify something, you cheapen it, and they've done that to sex. I think, yeah, but it's not just commodifying. It's, it, it's, it's a demoralization. I think if you wanted to describe the, the, the process that say the car then it is a, a, a demoralization, which is what usually happens to civilizations before they're overwhelmed by societies which which haven't undergone this process. And I think that may well be what's going to happen to us. So, but it's whether it, there is a, a temptation to wonder whether it's been deliberate, but I, I tend to think it's really just been a consequence of the collapse, particularly in in Britain and increasingly, I think, in the United States is observably beginning to happen, of Protestant Christianity as a genuinely believed philosophy of, of life. And this leads me to... I mean, the absence of something so powerful, the, the, the vacuum that that leads, allows all kinds of things to rush in. And one of the things it allows to rush in, of course, is a strong state. Right. Which increasingly is also what we have, because the, the, where the family is weak, the state has to become strong, otherwise society becomes uncontrollable. And also very, very expensive. Substituting for the family, even attempting to substitute for the family, is what is driving the cost of our social services up so high. And this, that leads directly into my last question, because this is in some ways the most important question, is that many of, many of the battles over the school systems have been lost. The public school system is, is, you know, is an arm of the state, thoroughly uh, reflecting the values of the sexual revolution. Uh, but... At the end of the day, you know, parents protesting is, is a good thing to do, but I have my doubts that it's actually going to change the sex ed curriculum at the end of the day. Oh, no, you won't. It's, it, they won't pay any attention at all to what you say. I, I think one of, one of the most exciting developments in the United States, and I don't know how common it is in Canada in the past 25, 30 years, has been the, the huge growth in homeschooling, mm-hmm. which is the great, a great revolt against the secularization and demoralization of the school system in the, in in the U.S., there's a certain amount of it in Britain. It's actually illegal in Germany uh, to this day uh, uh, because of a, of a national socialist law passed under Hitler, which has never been repealed. Uh, and attempts are being made to restrict it in Britain now. They're, they're, they're in their infancy, but they're on their way. Uh, and I think parental resistance to it on that on that scale is probably the only effective answer. You say, all right, well, if you if if, if you feel that this is how you want to, to drive your your power into my home and into my life, then I. Thank you very much, but I'm not going to let you. We'll, we'll educate our children at home. And quite honestly, I, I don't know what your public school system is like, but if it's anything remotely like ours, they'll probably come up with a much better general education on top. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah, that was going to be uh, the final question, is you're a father yourself, 
And, of course, as a father, you're tasked with passing on your values to your children. Mm -hmm. And what advice do you have in an age where, you know, most public spaces are lost to people with traditional values for carrying on? I think advice is to be incredibly vigilant, not to assume that that these things are being passed on. A mistake that I I might say was not to not to realize until quite late on just how serious the problem was. It is very serious. Find out what they're telling their children. Mm-hmm. Find out. Uh, you will be surprised and not necessarily favorably. And having found out, then see what you can do to make sure that, that you can pass on that which you inherited and which it is our fundamental duty to pass on to the next generation because if you don't do it, nobody else will. Well, Mr. Richards, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was British author and journalist Peter Hitchens discussing uh, the impact of modern sex education and how a lot of these things come about. As as Peter Hitchens points out, even the very intention of sex education is not simply the reduction of abortion or or sexually transmitted diseases, by which it, it fails on its own terms, but it is in fact to inculcate and indoctrinate the youth with new ideas about sexuality, and in many cases to divide them from their parents and give them a new worldview about sexuality. In many cases, the communities that are opposing sex ed curriculum uh, do not want those values passed on to their children. They want to pass along their own values. 